Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest introduced to you now. Tom Gaymore is a sports journalist and commentator, specializing in motorsports. Currently, Tom is working in Formula One, leading the commentary for F1 TV, and is also leading Sky Sports IndyCar coverage, including anchoring the studio for the world-famous Indy 500. Starting out as a racing driver, Tom soon swapped the steering wheel for a microphone after injury. Although Tom is best known as a motorsport broadcaster, Tom has also broadcast at the last two Olympic Games and from Premiership Rugby. Tom has a vast motorsport knowledge, having been involved in the sport for almost 30 years. He also works on a variety of other events for Discovery Eurosport, including the Le Mans 24-Hour and the World Endurance Championship, among others. In July 2011, Tom formed the Tom Gaymore Consultancy LTD, or TGC, to bring all of his consultancy projects under one roof and to further create a professional platform from which to operate. TGC specializes in talent development, driver coaching, performance management, and mentoring. Tom Gaymore, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Thank you for having me. You should work in marketing and PR. <laughs> and I'll definitely hire you because you do a wonderful job. The introduction is the best part. Yeah, it's the best part. <laughs> we always offer our guests, if any time in this conversation you're feeling a little down and you want me to read it again, we can do that. Totally fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, oh. that sounds very impressive. Oh, man. You are the voice in my head every time I'm at a stoplight. I've got a stick shift car, which nobody has around here, and I'm watching the stoplight. And as soon as that light turns green, it is your voice that says, <laughs> lights out and away we go. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a wonderful feeling. And when you're in the car or in the commentary booth, it's, it's still the same. And that's what's been a wonderful transition for me, certainly having had the, the sort of adrenaline and that hook when you're in the car, live TV, although I'm not driving anymore, live TV still delivers that. And for me, there's nothing better than that five, four, three, two, one, we're live. And the organized chaos that then plays out and then being able to, to sort of share in the fun as the cars go green and head down to turn one, you never know what you're going to expect. And that's the, the wonderful thing for, for TV. So, you know, I'm really lucky having swapped the steering wheel for the microphone, as you say, to, to, to still have that sort of kick because as I get a bit older, you know, I certainly do realize that, that whatever it is I do, it needs to be sort of practical, kinesthetic, definitely with that hint of adrenaline. Oh, it's amazing. Well, you do such an amazing job, and I want to talk about kind of what you do. And we're also going to get into your personal story, which I think is fabulous. But I was hoping we could start by talking about the sport itself. And I would yeah. just say, like, for the listener, you might not be interested in Formula One, and I can certainly relate because I was – alongside, you know, most listeners who might not be familiar with this. And and there was a podcast that was done on one of my very favorite podcasts, Peter, Atri Peter Atia, the dry podcast, where he hosted Luke Bennett, um, who's one of the doctors at Hinsa, which you introduced me to actually, and learning mm -hmm. about the physical and mental and emotional demands on the drivers was so gripping. And I'm also just curious too, what has it been like for you to be in the sport for so long and to now get this like crazy influx of people like me who were not familiar with this? This sport at all started watching this crazy series on Netflix, Drive to Survive, were absolutely fascinated, and now are like watching every race and every practice session, every qualifying. Like, what has that been like? I think for me, it's brought a wonderful diversity to the fan base of the sport. I mean, we 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 aim to be as as, as collective and as inclusive as possible, but motorsport is not the most accessible sport and that's whether or not you participate in it and or whether or not you want to go and watch it 
we all grow up around more mainstream sports. So in this country, you've got your football, your rugby and your cricket. And I'm sure in the States, wherever you are, it'll be your football, your baseball, your soccer, uh, your basketball. And they're a bit more accessible. That's what you play at school. That's what you play out of school. That's what you might play with your friends. And motorsport is a, off on a tangent. If you don't have a family member, a loved one, or, or a direct link to the sport, there has been that sort of detachment over the years. I think what Liberty have done and what Netflix have delivered is to bring that diversity, to bring a new audience that didn't know that they liked motorsport because they couldn't see it, is that you can't be what you can't see, right? In terms of a fan, in terms of an athlete, in terms of whatever it may be. So I think for, from my perspective, it's awesome to have so many new fans. And it brings, you know, it brings a new form of conversation, a new lens, new ways of thinking. So I'm all for that. And I think the success has certainly been evident in terms of more races in the US market. The sponsorship and marketing off the back of the Netflix success has been huge. And the sport's growing off the back of it in all areas. So, yeah, it's been a wonderful success. And now there's there's lots of debate as to where it goes now. Does it have a, a little bit of a fiction side to it or does it really go deep into the reality and pick out the the stories and the 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 sort of nebulous the inner workings of formula 1 whether or not that's engineers mechanics drivers what makes those human beings tick and how intense are those environments because formula 1 is is a very very diverse environment in terms of you've got the business side, you've got the marketing, PR and communications, you've got the performance side, human performance, the research and development around the car, the engineering, that side of things. You've got the sports side with the drivers. So there's so much that goes on and it sort of all comes together as a big circus, I always say, as a traveling circus. And everyone plays their part in the same sense that you go and watch the circus and there's different disciplines and specialisms and everyone has their their moment in the limelight and, and away they go. So, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to have more fans and, and the more we can open up the sport, the better. Yeah, I totally agree. And I really appreciate what Netflix does. They don't try to get into the nitty gritty of the races. It's more about the, the interplay of the personalities and the stories and the team owners. And you really get a sense of that drama and the human, you know, the human story behind the racing. But this is where I am so like complimentary of you guys and the work you do at F1, I would encourage the listener, go buy F1 Pro TV. It is well worth the 80 bucks that you guys ask. And you do such a great job of, of talking to somebody like me who doesn't have a background in this stuff, yet you are able to break some of this stuff down and explain things as you go. It's not like, <laughs> it's not like in American football where if you don't have a great background in American football, if you listen to some of these commentators, you have no idea what's going on, what Play packages they're calling. You know, my wife asked me a question about a game recently that I had on, and I wasn't able to answer the question. But you guys focus on educating people and explaining these are the rules. This is why they practice on soft tires and hard tires. This is why they're simulating these different things. We learn all of that from you and the wonderful F1 app, which I, I just, they do such a great job. 
Yeah, no, thank you. I think definitely that, that it's a big team and everybody at Biggin Hill and traveling to the circuits and so forth, they they have a real passion for the sport. They want to tell the stories, not just the human side, but but essentially break down the sport and make it more uh not accessible, but make it more understandable. And and certainly we try and do that. It helps because we have the practice sessions as well and the qualifying and the different formats. And we can really, you know, if there's breaks or yellow flags or red flags or delays, we can get into to some of the formalities. But it's nice to hear that it's it's well received your end and that it is going well. So thank you very much. Absolutely. It is like really ruining me for watching football to watch a four hour game and like three hours of that are commercials is so insufferable now after watching a race and continuous coverage and even the pre-show and post-show, it's only like two and a half hours and it's so concise. There's always something going on. And again, you guys do such a great job of highlighting not just who's in the lead, but what's happening in the middle of the pack and the race field. You mentioned F1 being a traveling circus, which it absolutely seems like it. So for somebody who's not familiar with Formula One. Can you explain what a, a, a typical race weekend entails? Yeah, definitely. So you have, you know, each, the, the big teams employ about a thousand people and sort of 350 will travel. You will, depending on your role, get to the circuit on the Wednesday and start to start to unpack. So the cars, if you're coming from a, a double header will be stripped and rebuilt. The engineers will be working through all of their simulation stuff and the, 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 the sort of data, there's, there's huge data packs that the engineers have. I mean, these are huge dossiers of information and that's passed on to the drivers as well. And there's, there's so much that goes into the performance side of the cars that the data capture is just astronomical. So they will be working heavily through that. And then from a driver's perspective, it's about trying to get that they've changed the, 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 the press conference around. So you can get there on the Thursday now and you're just trying to keep as calm as possible and as away from all of the, you know, the duties that you have, the drivers have, a, a huge number of duties. It's a bit like the week. Each Grand Prix is a bit like the week prior to the Super Bowl, right? That that's literally it from a PR perspective. You're you're at sponsor events, you're at the circuit, you're flown in helicopters to dinners, you're here, you're there, you're speaking to the press, you, you've got set agendas, and it's all written out, your schedule for the weekend, and then you've got to perform as well. You've got to stay hydrated, the nutrition side of things, your travel with your trainer, and they'll do a really good job of, of trying to keep you um, trying to keep you up to speed. And then you've got the TV side of things so that they will be setting up and uh, putting all the cameras into position as early as a week before the event and you know you've got another 300 400 people traveling doing that as well so there's just so much that goes on to uh to try and get a grand prix weekend together and don't forget some of these events are are back to back as well especially in europe so they'll be packing up on a sunday night traveling through to another part of europe and trying to get there by sort of tuesday wednesday and then they that they go again and for the mechanics and the engineers and a lot of people in the, the, the sort of heartbeat of the team, 
you know, they might be away for for anything up to sort of 30, you know, 30 days. And they're working every single day as well. They don't have days off and it's long days, you know, 14 hour days. And they brought the curfew in now over the Grand Prix weekend, but you can break that curfew, especially if there's damage or there's something that's gone wrong with the car or power unit changes, that kind of thing, or you're, you're late into the circuits on a Wednesday with your setup and you're behind the schedule. So, you know, they'll be working well into the early hours of the morning and then they'll be back again at, uh, at the crack of dawn to, to do it all again. So there's a lot of people working really, really hard to, to, to make it all work and function like it does. I would love to see how much caffeine, how much coffee is consumed on a race weekend by everybody. That sounds like like absolutely insane. Before we talk about the drivers themselves, can you tell us a little bit about these machines? How complex is an F1 car? Yeah, so I think the the F1 cars in in the sense, the the way the – it's, it's a power unit era now. So it, it's all been about that technology. The, the, you know, you've got the MGK units, the, the, the deployment, the battery packs, and you've, you've got the internal combustion engine elements as well as the power. So, it, it, you know, the power units, the overall umbrella. So, so really, really complex cars that creates a huge amount of brake horsepower out of, you know, a very small engine, 1.6 litre internal combustion engine. They're producing sort of a thousand brake horsepower. So, um, you know, very, very impressive with, with how they sort of get that delivered. And the, the, the tech is trying to be as road relevant as possible, but we are entering a, an era now where electric technology is building. And, and so, Formula One's looking hard to, to make itself as carbon neutral as possible, carbon neutral fuel, that kind of stuff. So it's it's going to be interesting how or where we go. I mean, they've, they've obviously published the new engine regs for, for 2026, but yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting direction in terms of how we go. I mean, that's the, the, the sort of power unit element in terms of how the, the downforce is created. We've just had a rule change. So they've gone back to ground effects. So that's created challenges in itself, but it's got rid of all of the, what I call litter that you saw in and around the front of the car or the tuning vanes or the different aerodynamic aids that were very much like shark teeth absolutely everywhere. We've sort of got rid of that now and gone back to, yes, you create a, a huge amount of load from the front and the rear wing and, and, and the air going over the top of the car. But actually it all comes from the, the diffuser and the floor and the ground effects. And so that's been a, a rule change that slightly spiced up the running order. Although we got Red Bull back at the front again, but you know, Ferrari looked really good at the beginning of the year. They certainly have a very good car over a lap, but the way the cars create downforce now, that's through ground effects that we haven't seen in Formula One for, you know, a, a good couple of decades. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it, it it definitely goes to show when they're making those corners, that's why it looks so unnatural when the cars are cornering because there's so much of that downforce forcing them into the yeah. ground. Yeah, that's so yeah, crazy. There's, there's huge amounts. I mean, it's, you know, they, they produce huge amounts of downforce. I mean, it's frightening. And when, you, when you're in those corners, the, the G-force on the driver, I mean, you're, you're five and a half Gs under braking, you're, you're three and a half Gs through the corner. So that in itself, you know, that's five, that's five tons of, of downforce on, on the car. Wow. So, 
you know, that, <laughs> they, they could at, at 100 miles an hour drive, you know, 150 mile an hour drive upside down. If you could actually get the car onto the roof, that's how much downforce they would do. It would stick to, to the roof. Wow. That's incredible. Wow. So one of your coworkers, Sam, is one of my favorites to include because yeah. he explains all the tech. You guys have great interactions. I love, I really love, I was gonna, what's that? I was going to say, when you asked me the tech question, you need, you needed him. We need to him. That, really. <laughs> well, and he does such a great job, not only during the show explaining what's going on, but also the features like Tech Tuesday, where it explains like the tire sensors or the aerodynamics and all of these things. It makes it so awesome to kind of follow along and he'll talk about these upgrade packages that they'll bring to the cars in a certain week so as the weeks are going you know you're trying to improve your car you're learning all the time about how it's performing in different conditions and you start learning about wow this team is bringing this crazy upgrade package and you're like well, what's what's this upgrade package and it's like a little carbon flange here and like a little change in the mirror curvature there like that's a major upgrade package like minute little details yeah, absolutely. And it's it's step by step. I mean, obviously you develop a car and they, they have incredible software for simulation and then you've got the real, the wind tunnel. There's no substitute for the wind tunnel because what the numbers say in the simulation doesn't always uh, correlate to what you see in the wind tunnel. And then what you see in the wind tunnel doesn't necessarily correlate to what you see on the racetrack as well, because you've got to marry aero grip up with mechanical grip, because obviously we talked about the aero downforce, you've got the mechanical grip as well, which are the torsion bars, the dampers, that kind of stuff, working on contact patches with the tires and and so forth. I mean, it's it's really, really complex. That's why they have so much data in terms of the engineers trying to, to marry their ideology and what the data says to, to, to the real. But yeah, Sam does a wonderful job in, in explaining it. And then you've got, you know, hundreds of people at the factories just working on hundreds of a second. If they can find a 10, that's such a huge breakthrough. And they'll spend, we've got the cost cap now, but they'll, they'll spend millions and millions of pounds trying to develop a 10th of a second because, you know, a 10th or two, that can be the difference between, going out in Q3 or getting through to, to Q1. And, and, and that's, um, you know, very, very, you know, well, that, that's, that's the difference between world championship points or not. No points. Yeah, that's right. So for the listener with the qualifying, you're, you're basically trying to get your best time. And there's three different ranges where they're eliminating drivers in the first two. And then the last 10 gets set by your position. And that comes down to hundreds, thousands of seconds. It is very, very close. And you described what the start is light. All, all the all the cars are at a standstill. They, they go as full gas as they possibly can into that first corner. But that's where all the traffic is. That's where you're going to have cars like side by side. And that's where all the chaos is. And so if you're one place back, you know, because you're a tenth slower in the qualifying and now that puts you into more danger or that slows you up because you get that effect through the corners, that's a huge difference. That's a difference between, you know, the top 10 drivers that score points or even making it onto the podium or not. It makes a big difference. Definitely. And you, you know, you don't want to qualify out of position because you're not used to racing in and around that area of the grid. You're not used to racing certain individuals that you'll be around. And it's where the melee is. It's where all of the concertina effect and the cars meet vying for, for one or two lines or small areas of, of tarmac. And, you know, the laws of physics and the, uh, 
you know, and, and so forth means that not everyone can get through. So that the likelihood of contact is, is, you know, is, is very real. And then you've done all of that work. The team have put all of that work in and you might have traveled 500 meters and, and you're out on the spot, which is really difficult to take as a team boss because they've got to pay for it as, a, as an engineer, as a mechanic. You might have pulled an all-nighter. And then as the driver, you've got your own personal disappointment and the weight of the world on your shoulders because you've got to trudge back to the garage and, and explain to everyone what went wrong. Yeah, we saw that literally at, I believe it was Spa, and you saw that shot of Lewis Hamilton walking down some yeah. like back alley to get back to the yeah. garage and explain what happened. So this is a good segue. Let's talk about the drivers, and let's talk yeah. about the physical demands. What kind of physical demands? You mentioned G-forces. What kind of shape do these guys have to be in? Yeah, so racing drivers are, are predominantly quite small, although the TV makes them look quite large. You want to be under 70 kilos, so anything sort of from like 62 kilos up, which means that you've got to be really efficient with your strength because you want to have a huge amount of sort of strength slash enduro in certain muscle groups, but then you, you don't want to have muscle where you don't need it because that's going to be excess weight, right? So drivers will tend to, to have big backs, no chest, like big triceps, no biceps, you know, huge forearms, huge necks, and the the sort of the G's. I mean, every time you hit the brake pedal, it, it, it's one and a half bar. So, so you're looking at, at anything up to sort of sixty kilos, sixty five kilos to hundred kilos of brake brake pedal pressure. So if you we had rugby players, which is your your equivalent football, we had rugby players coming to the simulator. And when they first hit the brake, because the brake pedal doesn't travel very far, it, it feels as though it's not traveling at all. It's that solid. And when you hit it, that they, they weren't braking because they were hitting it hard, but they weren't hitting it hard enough. And and I'd say to them, no, no, you don't understand. Think your beautiful pet dog or whatever it is has just walked out in front of the car and you're going to nail that brake pedal with all your might. You're going to do everything you can. You're going to put everything into hitting that brake pedal. And then they'll do it. It's like, bang, they'll do it. And then you're like, right, now you need to simulate that every single time you brake and we're going to do it for like 75 laps in extreme heat. And so every time you break, it's 65 to 100 kilos through your left leg. Then Formula One has power steering. But if we look at IndyCar, you know, you're looking at about 30 kilos through the wheel. And also, if you're looking at three, three and a half Gs through the corners in Formula One, you know, anything up to sort of 25 kilos and above on your neck. So if you're going around the right-hand corner, you're going to have all of the force on your shoulders and, and then 25 kilos pushing your head. And then you've got to come out of that and then hit the brake pedal for like 100 kilos. And then you've got to, to try and right yourself, brace yourself in the car, use all your obliques, your your glutes get so so sore because you're trying to hold your legs up in the car your hip flexors i mean nick devries who did his debut race for williams after the race he he just said i'm done like i won't i won't repeat the expletive but he just said 
my shoulders. He <laughs> just came on the radio saying, I'm back. I was going to bring um, that up, actually. This is a pro driver. This guy drives, yeah. it, it yeah. has a history of driving Formula 2. Very last yeah. minute, he gets called into this car. He's got a race for, yeah. for uh, Elbon, who had appendicitis. So he's got to do practice. Yeah. He's got to qualify. Then he's got to do the race, which is way longer than what he's used to. And yeah, the radio commentary was like, my shoulders are dead. Like, I have no yeah. shoulders. Didn't yeah, they have to like, wow, didn't they have to like get him out uh, of the car? Yeah, and they, they'll get him out of the car and he'll be in a bad way. You know, when they go to Singapore next time up, the, the heat there is phenomenal. So you'll see drivers on drips after the race, pre-race, that kind of thing. You know, there was a Formula 2 driver a couple of years ago that did his WF2 race there, and he just literally came on the radio after the race and said, call me an ambulance because <laughs> he was just finished. And you, you just really struggle to explain how physical it is, especially in the heat. So if you're thinking 32 degrees, 34 degrees air temperature in the car, that's going to be pushing 40 degrees because of all the heat and the engine soak and the heat soak and everything like that around you. Then you are sitting in Nomex trousers, Nomex polo neck, and then you've got a triple layer Nomex suit over the top of you, which is like wearing a tracksuit to go skiing in or something like that. Then you've got your gloves, your balaclava, your helmet. And although you've got your head out of the car, that's an aerodynamicist nightmare. So none of the airflow is ever directed into that hole because it would just go in and then come out. You want the airflow going as cleanly over the car as possible. So you'll see the drivers in Singapore, putting their visor up and trying to sit out of the car in the pit lane as they trundle down a pit lane just to try and get some airflow. So, you you know, you're imagine over 40 degrees with all of that kit on, no drink, no nothing for two hours in extreme, you know, your heart average heart rate is going to be 150. So you're working average heart rate 150 and over 40 degrees with no drink with all that core body temperature because they've got the thermometers, you're, you're pushing 40 degrees. Now, if you had a, a temperature of 40 degrees, you go to hospital. So they're right on the cusp of what's humanly possible. And it's so, so hard. I know some of you will say that I've seen them have a drink. Well, it's not really a drink because it turns into a cup of tea after about 10 minutes because <laughs> it's so hot everywhere. So all you use that for, because it's boiling hot after about 20 minutes, is to just wet your mouth. Otherwise, your tongue just sticks to the to the roof of your mouth. So, yeah, it's, it's really physical. It, it, it's horrible. And you'll get drivers, you know, they won't say this on the media or, or pre-race because they don't admit weakness to anyone else. But, you know, over the years, traveling to Singapore and stuff like that, after the practice sessions, drivers will, will speak to friends or trusted people in their circle and think, you know, I, I don't think I can do this, you know. <laughs> in the locker and it's it's that physical wow it's really hard that's crazy okay so you mentioned the people's necks and you definitely got a sense of that is especially in the netflix series when you see the drivers out of the car a lot all of them have, have slightly different body types but their face and neck is the same width like to just hold your head up in those kind of g-forces would require that for sure um and then we'll link to this in the show notes but there's a great video on youtube i think it's 14 or 15 minutes long and it's called regular guy drives a formula one car and this guy gets the opportunity to drive i think it was in france it was a 2012 car that 
that he got to drive and they kind of yeah. train you all day and then you you practice for like three laps and so as he's preparing fit dude he he drove a little bit in cart same as you and um you know fit dude they put him in and they say like okay apply the brakes so he pushes on the brakes and they're like no like apply the brakes so he pushes down and they say no like you don't understand like you need to apply the brakes and he does and they go back and say okay well that was about 60 <laughs> percent and yeah. he, he goes yeah. out and takes this lap and he sees his braking zone and so he hits the brakes his head snaps forward he can barely like lift his head to see the corner which he was able to get around but they told him afterwards he was applying about 40 percent of the braking power yeah definitely if you could superimpose max verstappen's talent into you for example and put you in the car you just wouldn't be able to do a lap you just wouldn't be able a fit person just you just don't have the strength i mean I can't begin to tell you when you hit the brakes for the first time it's five times your the weight and you've got the helmet on and everything and it will just it'll bang your chin on your chest that's it you, you're done and when your neck starts to go you, you're trying to hold your head up with with your eyeballs it sounds ridiculous but you're like oh like straining away trying to hold your head up with, with the eyeballs it's got a bit better with the hands device now because you can tighten the hands device you're not meant to but it gives you a way out whereas when we didn't have the hands device when your neck went that was it because literally you get into the corner and your head to fall over and there's nothing you can do once the, that muscle i think it's sternomasploid or something like that once that once that goes you're done and, and that would be day done. And, you know, whether or not you're a young driver doing F3 or moving up to 3000 as it was then or world series or, or GP2, you'd regularly go and do a two day test and you would do the first day done. You try and do the morning of the second day and you pot around, do a bit. And then that's it. You just call it a day because you just can't do the two days. Wow. It's, yeah, that's incredible. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the physical side. I would love to talk about the mental side. Um, and yeah. what what is what is the driver doing during the race? What things are they considering besides just you know throttle, brake, and steer? Yeah, so the the, the driver's mind is is very active because you have a, a huge amount of information that you need to digest, and that's not just what's rushing past your, your, your sensories. So, so you, you know, your eyes or, or whatever it is, or, or what you're feeling through, through your backside or, or whatever. It's, um, it, it's all of the information around fuel mileage. Uh, you know, if, if it's IndyCar, you've got to work your tools. So you'd be changing the roll bar, brake bias, weight jacker, that kind of stuff. In Formula One, they're regularly changing the brake bias and, and working through the different engine modes and the engineers are always in their ears. So the the amount of inf information that you've got to digest and, and, and make really quick decisions and operate on is, is, is vast. And for the for the vast majority of, of, of human beings, just just being able to to operate at that level is, you know, quite intense. So we get people on the simulators, for example, and then we'll do times tables, you know, eight times eight, six times eight. So just 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 because actually you, you've got no answer because <laughs> you, you, you just totally focus on what it is that you're doing. It, it, you just can't. It's so difficult to free up any other um, space to, to get those answers in and out. 
or get the questions in and answers out. So, you know, it takes a, a huge amount of, of practice and, and, and being in the environment and, and working through all of the, the different warm-ups and, and exercises that the, that the physios have. And then you've got the sporting side of things. So making sure that you are mentally fit, you know, your mental fitness, so confidence, that kind of thing, or are you feeling fa- fearing failure? You know, what, what is it that, that, or where's your mindset heading into that weekend? So the mind for me is the most complex element. And it, it, I always say the human underpins the performer. So we, we don't work enough with the human being. We, in co- you know, when it comes to coaching, we're brilliant on the technical and tactical side of things. And, but we, we don't invest enough time in, in, in the human element because actually we can't always be the best that we want to be. And you could have the best technical and tactical skill sets. You could have the toolbox to deliver those technical and tactical skill sets. But actually there's so much more around the occasion that goes into that. And unless you've got the toolkit to, to be able to, to be the best that you want to be on that day and deal with the emotion and, you know, the, the, the focusing on the process instead of the outcome and getting rid of the fear and the failure and sensing the opportunity, then it, it, it's going to be, you know, a really difficult time for you. And we, we talk a lot about this, but it's not, you can't just go and be that. You can't just say that, you know, it, it, it makes great sense when you sit down with whoever it might be, your psychologist or your trusted set of ears or whatever, and you, and you run through what we're talking about now. But then when you get to the circuit on a Thursday or Friday, all of the, the feelings that you had last time come flashing back. So you, you've got to have a process. I always say you, you've got to have a process to be able to get into the right mindset and make sure that you've got that sort of toolkit for, for the human element that then you can go on and, and deal with the, 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 the performer, the, the sort of performing elements. Because if you, if you, if you get that the wrong way around, it, it just doesn't come together. Yeah. So a good example of that, I think of somebody like Nicholas Latifi, he's classically finished pretty much last in every race that he's done. He, you know, his, his teammate gets sick. So this rookie gets in the other car and is, is driving and you're underperforming, whether it's your fault or your car's fault. You've got somebody who is hungry for a contract. There are 20 drivers in formula one. So those seats are, are, they don't come around all the time. Like you don't get a lot of opportunities and you wonder how that is affecting somebody in the back of their mind during a driving weekend we've got all of these other things to manage yeah exactly Latifi's an example Daniel Ricardo is a really good example of somebody that has all the talent in the world but is still struggling to find how he unlocks that under the extreme pressure that he's under now and you know he bounces back and he's the honey badger and he's always smiling and that kind of stuff but even then he's still searching for it that that just turn up right put a brave face on, make sure you're smiling. It'll come good. It's still not working for him. You know, he needs somehow to, to, to sort of go back, control alt delete and, 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 and keep searching for whatever it is that's going to make his human side tick because he's got that we've seen him perform and we've seen it throughout his career. He's got all the talent in the world, 
It's just unlocking it again. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I also see it in the teams. I mean, right now we, we kind of have a one-two, but arguably like a one-two-three with Red Bull as the top team, uh, Ferrari and Mercedes is kind of on the come up, and these teams are you know all performing. They're typically the the top six drivers are coming from these teams pretty much every week, and you see the difference between Red Bull, who is just crushing it right now, and Max Verstappen, who just he doesn't make mistakes, whether he's the fastest yeah. driver or not, he just never makes any mistakes, and you see it in the contrast. With Ferrari, they're making all kinds of mistakes, and they're coming on the radio to tell the drivers like confirm Plan G. Plan Red Bull is not considering Plan G. They are running Plan A. They're doing their race, and everybody else is getting very reactive to them versus saying what you're going to do and not making mistakes with it. Definitely, and if you look at their strategy at Ferrari, for example, that you can sense they fear failure. Now they're not going to openly admit that. And that's a subconscious feeling as well. It's not a conscious. It's not the first in a high uh, performance environment. You don't start fearing failure. It's a subconscious feeling. But what I mean by that is that there's there's elements of doubt. So they're, they're always asking questions, you know, right, Shah, what do you think? What do you, you know, it, it's all very reactive as opposed to that, 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 that sense of reassurance that, that they don't seem to be on the front foot. They don't seem to be proactive in terms of, uh, the, the confidence side of things. And, you know, I think that has come from a, a string of mistakes. So if you look at soccer, for example, you take a penalty, you miss that penalty subconsciously that never disappears. <laughs> so when you step up to take the next penalty, you've still got that in your mind. And, and actually you don't have that clear mind where you're focused on the process. Suddenly the outcome comes into fruition. So you start to think, don't miss, don't miss, don't miss. <laughs> you know, as soon as you start thinking that, it, it, you, you can't deliver on the process because you, you're, not, you're not engaged with the process. You, you're just outcome driven. And I think you're seeing that with Ferrari now. They, they, they just head into these big decisions and these critical moments just hoping that they get it right and, and, and that it's not going to go horribly wrong for them. And that, um, that's sort of detracting from, from, you know, that clear execution, that total focus on process. And when you look at Red Bull and Max, he's just totally focused on the process. It, it's just mechanically and systematically delivered and there's no doubt. No, it's just process driven the whole time. Yeah. And so many people, even in, you know, not only just driving, obviously, but with your personal goals, your, your, you know, your business goals, whatever they may be, way too many of us are focusing on outcome based goals. Yeah. I want to lose yeah. 10 pounds. I want to lift this much weight. Like that's, that's fine to have that goal, but you have to realize that that is not inside of your control. What is in your control is the things that you put in your mouth or the exercise that you do. It's going to the gym Tuesday morning at five 30 in the morning when you don't want to like, that's what you need to focus on. I'd love that you take that approach. Yeah. yeah. How do you, how, cause you, you say to people, okay, what's your goal? They'll say, I want to do it. And then you say, well, how are you going to do that? And, and then, uh, uh, and they'll like start loosely sort of flittering around the process and stuff like that. And then you're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like unless you're clear on the process and you're totally focused on the process, I will say nail the process and the outcome takes care of itself. 
Love that. I absolutely love that. This is probably a great time to learn more about you and your story and how you got so, um, I guess, focused on the mentality and, and saw this gap in motorsport where, where, you know, there's a big opportunity to grow. And I think, again, for the, for the listener that may or may not even care about Formula One, I think there's a lot of crossover here and a lot of things to learn. So can you tell us, you know, what was that transition for you that made you trade in, you know, the driver's seat for the microphone? Yeah, so my life went on a, on a very sort of upward and, and, and clear trajectory. And, you know, I had a very fortunate upbringing and I, I created this opportunity in motorsport and everything went really, really well. And then one day that all stopped and, and I had something called a spondylolysis, which is where the, the sort of you get that pars defect around the lumbar spine. 20% of the world's population have it, but obviously don't go careering into brick walls and, and hurting themselves and doing various other things. So I had this major surgery to reconstruct my lumbar spine, framework, screws, this, that, bone grass from my pelvis, 16 months of rehabilitation, but, but extensive. So you find yourself in an environment where you're really vulnerable. The first time in my life that I've been vulnerable and I didn't really, again, it was subconscious. I, I, I didn't know I was vulnerable. I, I knew that I couldn't really walk. I couldn't do anything. I'd lost my ability to, to do what I loved. I uh, suddenly found myself in this world of, of everything being an unknown. So I couldn't really control anything. So you, you go one step forward, two steps back. Rehabilitation is really, really hard. You don't have any clear definitives as to where your progress will start, whether you're not, you'll ever be able to play tennis, never mind going back and, and, and driving a race car. Then you have all of the anxiety of this is everything that that you feel that you, you put on this planet to, to do, and then it's going to be taken away from you. So I found myself very vulnerable, very, very much in a sort of spiral of no control. And off the back of it, I had this, this chronic anxiety and I never really opened up or, well, I say never really, I hid that from everyone because I'd never experienced anxiety. I didn't know what anxiety was. You know, I traveled the world, I drove race cars, I did all of these things. And now I, I couldn't go to a restaurant. You know, I was sort of panicking. I'd order my food and, and want to leave and, and just feel so, um, so, so horribly panicky about everything. And I didn't know what it was I was panicking about. You know, it wasn't like, being scared of a spider, seeing a spider and then reacting to that and being fine. Every, I, I, this was just inside me 24 seven. I was living with it the whole time and I became like a great actor. You know, I didn't tell anyone. I acted my way through it. I, I became flaky. I, I, I was unreliable and my whole world was falling apart. And I, you know, I just thought that the only way I could get out of it was to splash my face with, with water and, and, and get on with it, you know. <laughs> and that was the worst possible thing that, that I could do. I continued down that road, not sharing, not talking, because you don't know what uh, people are going to think of you. you. You can't go and tell your employer. You can't go and tell your parents. You can't go and, you know, you, you, you're trying to get back in a race car. You can't go and tell everyone that you can't go to a restaurant and you're suffering from chronic anxiety. But, of course, I could but that's what you feel that you can't. 
And, you know, I'm going back 15 years ago, the societal narrative now around mental health and talking and providing that trusted space for people's really uh, improved, but it, but it wasn't there then. And certainly in our sport, very, very um, sort of macho testosterone fueled sport. And you didn't show weakness bit like the military or policing or whatever, you know, that they have similar problems around showing weakness. And so finally I hit rock bottom. Finally, I got the help that I needed. And that was very much the beginning of my journey and very much the, the sort of interest into the human side of, of, of everything, because I, I honestly believe that I didn't know enough. I, I entered a sport not really understanding how the human can inform absolutely everything that you that you do. And I suffered alone, but from a performance side, I didn't ever really maximize my performance on reflection because I didn't know enough about the psychology, the mindset, the focus on the process. You know, I, I really did put a lot of pressure on myself, fearing failure, and that was my driver, you know, just make sure you don't fail. It's, it's win at all costs, which, which sounds great on paper, but actually has, has a very uh, short expiry date when, when you move into a pressurized environment. But, um, but yeah, so I do loads of work now with, with whoever it is to, 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 to provide that trusted space and allow people to, to sort of reach out. So I, I tell my story and then if people are in a room, so I, I did a talk once and, and somebody from the US military actually got in touch because they, they sat at the back of the room and, and, they, and they said, that's me. I, I, I feel all of those things. I, I don't feel I can reach out, talk, share, but I'm living in this chronic state of anxiety and depression. And, 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 and they actually reached out. And, and to this day now, we're, we're really good friends because that peer-to-peer -peer support is sometimes the bridge that you need to go and get help that you want. There's, there's wonderful uh, platforms and facilities for help, but sometimes we need a bridge to, to, to get us there. And that peer-to-peer -peer support for me, if I'd have had it, would have been the most powerful thing because when I did receive it and I sat in a room of athletes who I looked up to and adored and they all shared their vulnerability and their stories and that was the one most powerful moment where I just left that uh, get together and felt normal that, that, that what I was feeling was normal and that actually there's light at the end of the tunnel and there's hope and there's a very real reason why I feel like I do because of what I went through and the vulnerabilities you face when you have such a, such a big injury. So, yeah, so that's really been my journey and I'm really passionate about it and, 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 you know, try and sort of volunteer and, and do as much informal work as, as, as possible around helping others. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for being vulnerable with us and sharing that story. You mentioned the help that you received. What did that look like at first? Where were you able to find your help? Yeah, so for me, it was that peer-to-peer -peer support. So actually what happened is that there was, there was medical provision there, but it, I didn't have the confidence to go into that medical environment and say, well, actually, I don't feel right because it, I was frightened. And I remember signing a form and they said, look, you know, if, if we think you need it, you will 
stay with us, you know? And, and I remember thinking, I don't want to do that. You know, I, I was fighting for control. So the last thing I wanted to do was hand over the control, even though that would have been the best thing. So I went into that in meeting and sort of lied my way through it, you know, that I was fine, that there's this player really down, that, you know, and then I, there was a relief when I got out of it. And actually it was the peer-to-peer support. So listening to athletes that have been there and done it, that have had chronic injuries or whatever it was, and they just tell their story and me listening there and picking up one or two bits and, and what have you was, was the, the confidence that I needed to, to, to actually break down those barriers of fear, go and get the help that I needed and actually begin that journey. And it wasn't something to, to be frightened of, or it wasn't something abnormal. It wasn't just me, you know, this is, something that affects a, a, a lot of different people and so that was was the catalyst for me and that's what the help looked like and it was finding what worked for me you know there's group sessions there's one-to-one there's all kinds of different things for me it was one-to-one but I'm quite an intense character and I really like to understand things so if I can try and work with somebody you know the surgeon when I was having my back he was like just stop asking questions <laughs> I wanted to understand it you know I felt if I could understand it that was my healing process you know and, and it was the same with the mental health and and actually it's been understanding it that has been the big the catalyst for me making the strides that I've made today because I can really start to to understand why things happen and 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 start to to preempt things or start to work with others I can see when other people are struggling you know you 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 get that underpinning knowledge if you like that really has proved um proved important because you never quite know when when you're going to feel anxious again or whatever the trigger might be or wherever you might be. So, so the, the bigger your toolkit, the, the, the sort of the, the wider your, your knowledge base on it, that the, the, the better you are in terms of helping yourself and, 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 and making sure that you're in that, that sort of that, that bubble that, that you need to be in for, for sort of mental fitness, if you like. And yeah. if you can't create that yourself, go and get some help mm. and, uh, and, and, you know, make sure you do. Yeah. You know, when I got into personal training and nutrition coaching, I thought my job would be to create workout programs, specific exercises, specific corrective work, and this many reps, and I'm going to count for you. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you the, your meal plan and all the things to eat. And it, it really surprised me in the beginning what the job really entailed. People needed somebody to listen to them. People needed somebody to validate them. They already knew kind of what they wanted to do, but were feeling unsure about it. And so my, my coaching over time has been way less about the technical side of things and way more about like learning how to ask questions and, and dig a little deeper. And why do you have this goal of losing 10 pounds? What's going to be different about your life when you lose these 10 pounds? Like, are, is that going to make things vastly better for you or not? It's, it, it is going a little bit deeper in understanding that people want to be heard. They want you to listen. They want you to, you know, ask questions and things like that. So that is a learning process. Definitely. And I think that just enhances the end goal. I always say, when I'm working with a driver, it's not necessarily about working on their brake shape or technique or line. We can very quickly work through that. It's working with the individual to make sure that they can execute their best brake shape and being on the right line. When they're 
arguably maybe experiencing the most important day of their life. And I think that's the most important, that just enhances the, the, the outcome. And it's the same with you working with individuals in the gym. It's, it's that sustainability. So they might be able to very quickly hit a goal in that short two, three week period that you're working with them. But how do you shape that outcome to look, you know, to span over five, 10 years and, and how do you enhance the outcome? So, so they better understand themselves and, 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 and so forth and, and, and create that sort of sustainability around maintaining that initial outcome. I think that's really important. Yeah. You've mentioned tools in a toolkit, and I think that's a great way to look at it. We've talked a little bit about, you know, focusing on, you know, the process and, and worrying less about the outcome. What are some other things that you specifically work with to help build that toolkit? So, so from, from the mental process side of things, um, for, for me, it, it, it's very much around strengthening strengths as well. So I have a friend who, I'll tell a little story, played cricket, ended up playing cricket for England at, 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 a, at a very late age. The whole time they played first-class cricket, which is, you know, your, your sort of professional team stuff, um, they were told that they didn't score runs quickly enough. So for, for eight years, they were coached to score runs quickly enough. And all they ever did was focus on what they couldn't do, focus on what the coaches told them they couldn't do. And over time, they forgot to do the things that they did well, well. And actually their strength was to face more balls than anybody else. So forget about the run rate. And they changed coach very late on in their career. And somebody came in with a different mindset, focused on the human and not the performer and said, right, what's your strength? Your strength is to face more balls than anybody else. So that's all we're going to focus on. We're going to strengthen your strength. So I'm not interested in any of the things you can't do. I'm just going to focus on the one thing that you can do, and we're going to do that better than anyone else. And what they did that summer was face more balls than anybody else, which meant they spent more time at the crease than anybody else. And because they were spending so much more time at the crease than anybody else, they scored more runs than anybody else. Because they scored more runs than anybody else, they got picked for England. <laughs> but right at the end of their career, focusing on the one thing that they'd never been able to focus on throughout their professional career. Because what we tend to do as human beings is tell people what they can't do <laughs> or what the, focus on the things that you can't do that, that you need to improve on. It's always that you need to improve. And, and actually, let's get people to strengthen strength. So to forget about the things that they can't do, grab the things that they can do and make sure that they are executing those to the best of their ability day in and day out and continuing to get better at the things that they do do really well. So that for me is the other tangent is, is strengthening strengths. I love that. I think I learned that concept maybe a decade ago from the strengths finder by the Gallup poll people. Yeah. You yeah. take an assessment yeah. and you find out what are your top five out of, I want to say there's like 34 different like categories of strengths. And it makes the same yeah. argument. Like the, if, if I'm not a data person, then getting better at data is not going to be exciting. I'm not going to enjoy it. It's way down yeah. on my list. Why don't I focus yeah. on these things, which you told me I'm, I'm already pretty good at. And let me maximize those things. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And so, and certainly for sport, we can 
you know, we can learn so, so much from that, just focusing on the things that we're good at. Yeah. So, so we've kind of talked about what people can do if they feel like they're experiencing that depression and anxiety. Um, you know, they're in dark times in their life and learning how to reframe their situation, you know, start where you are, do what you can try to try to make, you know, a step in the right direction. What, what about for somebody who is around somebody they, they can tell is going through that type of a difficult, like call it, you know, emotional situation. How can we better support those around us with their mental health? I think, for me, a lot of people say we need to encourage people to talk and all the narrative is talk, talk, talk. People need to talk more. Make sure you talk. If you're struggling, talk, talk. Well, actually, people only talk when they find a trusted space. And what we need to be better at as a society is creating trusted spaces, creating those trusted ears. When people feel like they're in a trusted space, they will talk. And actually, it's not the onus is not on them to continue, you know, keep saying talk, talk. It's actually the onus is on us to, to create trusted spaces, trusted ears. And so that would be my advice is to, to try and understand how we can do that. My trusted space was that that room, that room full of individuals sharing their stories. So, you know, I try and create trusted spaces by showing vulnerability myself. So I find that if I show vulnerability and I start talking about my own vulnerability, you start to find the trust, you start to create a trusted space. People don't necessarily immediately sense that. So they the example of the the, the gentleman in the US Army didn't feel like he could contribute there and then, but messaged me two weeks later. And, and that's the sort of time frame is, is that you're working towards. People will tiptoe into those trusted spaces. So give them the space, create the trust, and allow them to have the control and the freedom to step into it when they like. So often we you know, we, 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 we try and push people in and, and, and you know, it, it, it's hard. It's hard when it's like that. Yeah, I was just thinking that actually we we all have our own way that we like to communicate and be communicated with. And we do try to kind of force that on our own timeline that we feel onto other people. And so I think that's a really, really good point. Maybe sometimes it's just enough to say, like, look, if you need anything, I'm here for you. Um, I, I, you know, share an experience of of your own vulnerability, I think is really, really important. It helps people feel more comfortable and understand that it might be on their timeline that they reach out for help, not on yours. Exactly. And when I was starting my sort of coaching journey a decade or so ago, you, one of the first, not mistakes, but one of the first sort of pathways that most coaches start on is exploring that freedom around people not necessarily wanting to do it your way. So when you be successful at something, you try and impart that success on other people. So you're like, this is what works for me. This is what you've got to do. This is, you know, and, and actually, and we all do it because we're really keen to help people and, and we want people to, to sort of thrive and, and, and flourish. But actually it's about finding what works for them. And I think the great coaches do that really, really well in, terms of sort of that's the difference between coaching and instructing right and, and getting people to, to to sort of flourish and, and do it their way yeah 
Yeah, no, I love that. Man, this has been a really special conversation. This is something I've been looking forward to for a long time. I got to combine everything. We got to talk about Formula One, which I love talking about. I, I convert all of my clients to also watch all the Formula One races. So I've got something to talk about with them during our sessions. I'm always a little frustrated with the client that doesn't really want to, but they'll, they'll come around. Um, but also talking about this mental health piece, I think is so critical. And things like the the last Olympics, so learning about Simone Biles and the struggles that she was going through and, and, and you know, understanding that, yeah, these people, we put them on a pedestal and they're performing at the highest levels, but they have, they've got the same struggles, very human that we have as well. They have families, they've got personal lives, they've got all these things they need to deal with as well. And so just understanding how we can do a better job, uh, like you said, building those bridges to other people and making people feel comfortable, I think is such a wonderful message. And I'm so grateful for you and your journey and, and you being vulnerable and willing to share that with others. So, so, so grateful for that. Tom Gaymore, where do you want people to go to find you and connect with you and your work? So you can find me on Twitter, really. I, I try and minimize the amount of time I'm on social media, the, the sort of disconnect, the reconnect. But I'm on Twitter. I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I'm on Instagram as well. So at Tom Gaymore, G-A-Y-M-O-R on Twitter, at TV Talker on Instagram. And yeah, if you're listening and you have any questions or you want to reach out, please please do drop me a message. And I've really enjoyed the conversation. I'm passionate about people and, you know, just being able to, to chew the fat and, and talk about some of the topics we've talked about with you has been absolutely, you know, awesome, Casey. I love your enthusiasm. You're, you, you're wonderful. Uh, sort of relaxed nature and, and, and way of putting the podcast together has been brilliant. And I'd love to come back one day. Uh, we will absolutely have you back anytime that you like. Um, I, I, yeah, again, I just have to say thank you to you. Do I, I really appreciate the kind words, and that's high praise coming from what I would consider my favorite sports commentator. Um, but also, your passion and energy brought me to a sport that I was not interested in, that I am... It, it's, it's fascinating on so many levels. You guys cover it well. You talk about it well. You educate people like me, and I just so much appreciate that. And I just... I love your enthusiasm as well, and I always get excited when you're on the call for the race. So again, thank you so very much. You have a lifetime pass to come back on our show anytime. Uh, but thank you for making time to come on today. We really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce 
that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form, very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We are also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to Boundless Body Radio.